Hey, it's Gregory from Rough Translation. Just before we start the show today, I want you to think about an episode from our program that has been meaningful for you. Maybe the story of Pakistani women using Jane Austen as a survival guide to arranged marriage, French workers turning slogans from McDonald's into a quasi-religious social movement, Somali prisoners tapping a super long Russian novel one letter at a time through a concrete wall to survive solitary confinement, our episodes about casteism in Silicon Valley or the civilian-military divide in the United States. We scan the globe for these stories that will surprise you with how relevant they feel. And then, you know, one month a year, we ask you to help support that work by donating to your local public radio member station. That link is donate.npr.org slash translation. And of course, I don't need to tell you this, but when you support your station using that link, you are helping them support our team of producers, editors, engineers, interpreters, storytellers from around the world. You're also sending a message that you came there from this show. When you use that link, you're saying you value these kinds of stories in your lives. If you've ever recommended us to a friend or online, thank you. This is another way of recommending us in a way that will be heard by your station and help us stay there for you. Go to donate.npr.org translation and thanks. Okay, so here's the show. You're listening to Rough Translation from NPR. I'm Gregory Warner. We're doing a little mini-series of stories this month on themes that will resonate with the holiday season. Stories about food and tradition and homecoming. Today's episode, Coming Home, Where You Least Expect It. I can't believe I'm telling you this, really, because it, it may sound silly to people. So this is a story that Kathy Grieve does not tell a lot of people, even her family and her closest friends. Because they would just like go, oh my God. Is she off her tablets? She's completely bonkers. The whistle sounds, and they've got the point. It starts in 2002. Ireland are on their way to the parties. Ireland has qualified for the World Cup. And that was a very rare thing. And my son was into soccer at the time, and I decided that I would get us tickets and we would go to the World Cup. Which was hosted that year by South Korea. But then, almost as soon as Kathy and her son arrived there... I just felt almost like, have I been here before? I felt this, I had, like a, I, I was coming back here. I hadn't been there before. I'd never been anywhere in, in this part of the world before. But there was almost a, you know, a recognition of something or a feeling of, a sense of something. And this feeling, it kept happening. Like she'd walk down some street and think, Oh, I've seen that before. She'd taste something new in a restaurant and wonder, Where did I eat that dish before? And then I thought, I've never eaten that dish before anywhere. And it was like, I feel like I've eaten this, you know, every day. That was all part of that sense of belonging then. A more mystically inclined person might have considered the possibility of past lives. That was not Kathy's response. It was more bemusing, I would say. I was bemused then. Kathy was working at the time for the BBC as a producer and editor, work which had not allowed her to get comfortable in any one place for long. She'd lived in London, in Washington, D.C., and even when she was home in Ireland, she was based in Belfast during the sectarian conflict of the 90s known as the Troubles. You know, thinking you were coming home or arriving in Dublin and getting a call to say there'd been a bomb, there'd been something else, and having to just get in the car and go straight back to Belfast. So I always felt a sense of guilt at that time, but I had to 
do the job I was doing. She was a single mom. Her son lived in Dublin with his grandparents. And so I was a mom from afar at times or on the phone. This trip to South Korea wasn't just about cheering on the boys in green. It was a chance to reconnect with her son. I asked Kathy if maybe one reason that she felt like she belonged in South Korea was because she was finally spending all this quality mom-son time. But no, she said, the two of them had taken other summer trips. We'd gone to France, Italy, California, Spain. She'd never before felt this feeling of cultural déjà vu. Besides, her son was definitely not feeling the same way. He was this little blonde boy, and he had loads of freckles. So every time we left the hotel, there was a lot of people sitting on the road. They all wanted to take pictures with him. (laughs) So he was like, Mom, I'm not having my picture taken again today. Her son felt like a tourist. Kathy felt like a returnee. And there was this moment near the end of the trip. They were on a hike in the hills, and they stopped at an old stone temple. They went inside just to cool off in the heat. And I was sitting there and was looking out and just thinking about nothing, really, just calm. And my son, he just walked over to me and he said, Mom, I think this is where you belong. I think you've come home. And I thought it was a really profound thing for him to say. And he just walked away again. When Kathy arrived at the airport to fly back home to Ireland, she was filled with sadness. And I felt like I was leaving something behind that was, you know, an important part of me. I couldn't leave my only child behind. That just wasn't an option. But 20 years later, Kathy's never been back to South Korea, and she still doesn't know what happened. It's still with me, whatever that experience was about. Finding home far from home, it's complicated if you feel like you belong in a place that your family doesn't. Today on Rough Translation, a story for you from an American mom on a military base, a listener who told us how her six-year-old son decided he belonged to a different country. He couldn't verbalize it, but I kind of got the feeling that he wanted to be with the kids who looked like him. And then that country wholly embraced him, which left his mom wondering, where did she belong in his life? Like, I just, I can't explain to you the amount of fear I had. That story with an update when Rough Translation returns. Hey, it's Gregory from Rough Translation with a question for you. This holiday season, as many of us spend time with family and friends, how do you remain neutral during these gatherings? How do you handle that one table where you don't know who has a beef with whom, where you know something's going to get said that's going to pull you in? What does neutrality mean to you? Have you tried to remain neutral in a family dispute or in a bigger conflict in your community or your country? Send us a voice memo to roughtranslation at npr.org on this neutrality theme, and we might feature it in an upcoming episode. We are back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. Our story today is about a mother and a son, Nicole and Ryden. We're not using their last names for security reasons involving a minor in a military family stationed overseas. 
This is an episode we first aired in 2019, but we've got an update at the end. Here's the show. Yeah, I have this, uh... At nine years old, Raiden has moved around a lot. It has, like, what I call treasure in it. Raiden keeps the stuff from his travels... I got this, um, red container. ...in this little plastic treasure box. It has, um, lots of coins and... There's a seashell... ...from the Philippines. That's where his dad is from. There's a pen where you can click different colors of ink. This pen used to be really nice. His teacher took away the pen. But then I stole it back. Hopefully she's not listening to this because she'll be so mad. Raiden was born in Germany. Then he moved to North Carolina, then Japan, then Kansas. Now he's back on the East Coast. His dad is in the U.S. Army, and they move from base to base. He's lanky with a swoop of brown hair covering his eyes. He's a middle child with three siblings, but it can seem more like an only child. Interacting with other kids, that's always been hard for Raiden. I didn't know care if anybody didn't play with me. His earliest memories are being on a school playground, making up games that didn't need another player, like trying to dribble a basketball closer and closer to the ground until it stopped. I just dribbled the basketball for the whole... He could fill a whole recess period that way. I was never really um, good. Never good at fitting in. It was um, hard to do. Raiden is just really aware of the world around him in a way that my other kids aren't. Raiden's mom, Nicole, dreaded this thing that would happen anytime she and Raiden were out in public together. Like recently, when she brought cupcakes to his class for his birthday. We walk in and this kid says, oh, that's your mom? And I was like, yeah, I'm his mom. And he goes, oh, oh, I don't know, I just thought she'd look different. And I'm like, you know, I know what he meant. Ryden looks a lot more like his dad, who's from the Philippines, while his mom... I'm a basic white girl. Blonde (laughs) hair, green eyes. Your average pumpkin spice latte kind of girl. One time in a store, her younger son was physically taken from her. The store manager wouldn't return him to me because they didn't think he was mine. I get asked a lot where I adopted them from. And what made you think that Ryden noticed it more or that it affected him more? He said some things to me. He'd ask me to dye my hair. Uh. Um, he asked me to dye it black. And I said, I said, why? And he says, so we can, we can look alike. Ryden was asking this when he was four. You know, and stuff like that, like, it hurts. You know, I wanted to go somewhere where they would not be different. When Raiden was five years old, the family got word that they were moving again, this time to Japan. I was really excited to go to Japan, mostly, though, because I knew what it would mean to my husband and the kids. I would be the one different and standing out, not them. She packed up the family to go overseas, ready and even looking forward to being the one in the family who was seen most as the outsider. The house that they were assigned to on the U.S. base in Tokyo, it happened to be right on the edge of the compound, next to this chain-link fence. It's all the Japanese people can see inside, because it's just a chain-link fence, and we can see outside. On their side of the fence was the American base. We all had yards and grass. Little America. <laughs> you know, we had a pool and like these beautiful playgrounds everywhere. 
But five-year-old Raiden seemed a lot more interested in looking through the fence at the Japanese kids. You'd see them playing and, like, the freedom that they had going everywhere by themselves. In Japan, it's pretty common practice that kids will walk to school alone, without parents or teachers, just in a line of other kids. Small children all walking together in unison. In their colored caps and backpacks. This huge procession. And Raiden one day tells his mom, I want to go to school with them. She tells him, Raiden, you don't speak Japanese. And by the way, neither do I. And he just really kept harassing me to go. And I kept asking him why. And he couldn't verbalize it, but I kind of got the feeling that it was, he, he wanted to be with the kids who looked like him. If you ask Raiden why he wanted to go to the Japanese school, he says he wasn't paying attention so much to how those kids looked. It was something else. I've always been different. Something deeper he saw. I started noticing it. He had this feeling he'd belong better. I liked it. With them out there. For Nicole, it was so much easier to stay on this side of the fence. I don't want to deal with not reading the language, and I knew the homework would be tough, and I couldn't help him. But... This is what her son seemed to need. Like, okay, let's do this. So she called City Hall. They told her as a foreigner she needed to do an interview. The interview with the school principal. She shows up at the school with her translator and also Ryden and her two younger kids. And the teacher gives Ryden some paper to draw a picture off in the corner. While the principal starts asking questions to Nicole. Why does she want to join this school? And it was just very much him leaned back, legs crossed, nodding his head. I'm like... We will work hard, and we're dedicated, and we're committed to doing this. And my two toddlers, they're like, I want snacks, and blah, you know, screaming and throwing Cheerios. And, and the Japanese children, for life of me, I don't know how they do it, but they're, they're quiet, and they're well-behaved. We absolutely cannot make a mess. So I'm on my hands and knees on the floor, picking up these Cheerios and, and sweeping them with my hands out of the Berber carpet. Above the horizon of the desk, she can just make out the nodding head of the school principal. Still firing questions to her translator. And I had to tell them, too. They're like, why do you want to be here? I was like, well, my son really wants to learn Japanese. And they say, well, he can just take Japanese lessons. I said, well, he wants to learn the culture and be a part of the society. And they were like, oh, okay. So he, he wants to be Japanese. I was like, yes. And it works. Raiden and his mom are in. Which... About, like, getting accepted into Harvard. When school begins, mornings fall into this rhythm. Rod and his mom leave their house on the base and walk to the meeting spot half a mile from the school. Rodden will line up with the other kids. The oldest child at the front of the line will put her arm up 7.45. 7.45, she have her arm up. 7.46, arm down. All right. Itarashai! Then we all have to say in unison, Itarashai! And the kids respond in something like, Thank you, mother. I'm off to a good day. And then they all walk. Nicole is not exactly a free-range mom. She is more the type to worry. All my friends tell me, they say, how, how are we going to die today, Nicole? You know? <laughs> so watching him go... <sighs> you know, it, it was hard. He looked so small in his little yellow cap walking through the streets of Tokyo. They walk home by themselves, too. And so I would give it 20 minutes after he's supposed to be home, and then I would start freaking out. She'd call the school. They couldn't tell her where he was, except somewhere between school and home. And then Rodden would stride in. It'd be like they found a bug on the sidewalk and they were playing with that. <sighs> Walking group was already a challenge for Nicole. 
And then she noticed this one kid. This one boy who leaves after everybody else. He'd been kicked out for so long. So he would just walk by himself. Nicole never found out what rule he'd broken. For her, it was just one more thing to worry about, that her son would be also ostracized. If you stand out, it's bad. And there were so many ways to go wrong at this new school. Things that she, as a mother, needed to be on top of. School shoes, outside shoes, gym shoes, walking to school hat. You needed to buy a special set of crayons. It's like individual crayons. In the right metal box. For 60 cents each. If one crayon breaks, you have to replace that one color. I have to wash the crayon box. I'd have to wash the pencil box. A reflective cover for his backpack, cloth hat for gym class. Red on one side, white on the other. Flip it depending on what team you're on that day. But it was just another thing that Nicole had not known to buy. Until Ryden came home in a panic. He came home like, I didn't have my hat. You know, and I'm like, I didn't know, Ryden. And so then I would, you know, have to drop everything and bike to the store and get him whatever supply I didn't know that everybody else had. Sometimes fitting in was not a matter of something she could buy at the store. Like every time the school cafeteria served fish. They served us huge fish. Whole fish, like scales and eyeballs and fins and everything. And I hated fish. I had a dream that I was at school and it was lunchtime and I saw the fish. I was like, uh, fish again. And then I fell asleep and then when I blinked my eye open, the dead fish was looking at me. And then I looked somewhere else and there was another dead fish looking at me. And then when I closed my eyes and then blinked, opened my eyes, All of them were looking at me. That was the most freakiest dream ever. So he wasn't eating lunch. And so I asked, I said, can I pack his lunch? And they were like, does he have a food allergy? I said, no, he just doesn't like everything. And they were like, well, then he doesn't eat. In America, I would just be like, no, I'm packing his lunch. But in Japan, I just didn't know how to behave. Even my husband, though, would be like, you need to chill out, woman. Hey, this is what this is what we eat. By we, she heard it as we Filipinos, we Asians, not you. He almost would accuse me of whitewashing the children. Nicole had come to Japan knowing full well that she would be in the minority. She looked forward to the change. I would be the one different, not them. Except she had never really been in the minority. And she didn't expect that being an outsider in this foreign country would make her feel like an outsider in her own family. I was just really torn, and I didn't want to lose the respect of my husband. And Nicole started to wonder what impression of her Ryden was getting in this new school. Like, she remembers before Ryden's first class field trip, she had to pack her lunch, uh, a bento box. And they sent home a letter in English, like, don't pack soda in the bento box. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to pack my kindergartner's soda in his lunch to begin with. Um, Then I get a phone call like, oh, just to make sure you don't pack soda. That's not very healthy. And I was like, got it. Not packing soda. Day before the field trip, Ryden comes home. Mom, please don't pack soda. She said tea or water. I'd be like, Ryden, you never drink soda. So why would I send you soda to school suddenly? And, And it was only the kids with white moms who got that note. And that was about... There's like three of us. I chose to, you know, shut up and, and take it because this was important to my son. 
Ryden never did learn to enjoy fish for lunch. And he still often missed supplies. His mom misread or mistranslated the letters home. None of this, though, seemed to faze him. He loved school. This, it, um, it makes sounds. <laughs> he loved music class, where they played melodicas. It's like a keyboard that you blow into. He loved the vending machines and the rainbow lizards that ran around the school grounds. I caught a lizard, put it in my pocket. After school, I checked my pocket and it was gone. And most of all... I liked recess. The kid who once dribbled a basketball alone on a U.S. base, he found it so much easier to make friends here. Easier. Yeah, it's like I was Japanese, sort of. It's like I was meant to be there. Itsuko Ogawa was one of Raiden's teachers. And she says he was really shy at first. Not the kind of kid who would ask someone to play with him or join his game. But the kids really liked him, and they included him. And as she put it, Raiden was a wonderful match for Japanese society. With just one problem. He never learned to stay quiet. He kept talking, talking, talking. In the morning walking group line. Like, disturb other students. She says this was a problem for safety if one of the kids is always turning around and trying to chat with the kid in line behind him. So I asked Dryden to stop. (laughs) Please be a good boy in the morning group. And yeah, I asked so many times to Dryden, but he was not. She told him, I'm just going to give you three warnings. After three times, I will ask your parents to to come. The teacher called me and she told me that Raiden was suspended from the walking group line. And so I needed to take him to school. And I was like, I'll just uh, I'll just drive him. It's, it's not a big deal. And, and she said, um, oh, no, that's not possible. You must walk him. And, and I said, I, I can't, you know, I was like, I have two small kids. I can't, I can't walk him to school every day. And she's like, well, perhaps when he sees your struggle, he will understand how his behavior is affecting his family. And then once, once he sees how hard it is for you, he will decide to change so that he's not in, inflicting hardship on his mother. And in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, right. My kid doesn't care, you know? <laughs> Next day, she and Raiden head off to school together. Raiden's out in front. She's behind him, pushing the stroller with the baby in one hand, holding Raiden's younger brother with her other hand, so no hands-free for an umbrella. And it's monsoon season. Yeah, so it wasn't just, like, rain. This was pouring, downpour rain. My hair is, like, stuck to my face. It's coming into my raincoat, and the rain is hitting the stroller, too, and soaking through the top of it. And then, of course, my toddler wants to jump in every rain puddle. And Ryden just thinks, this is great. He's like, I get to walk with my mom and and all this. So he kept trying to just talk. Like, is titanium stronger than adamantium? And if Iron Man got into a fight with Wolverine, who would win? Because Iron Man's made out of this. And, and And I'm like, I don't know. Okay, shut your mouth and walk. 
you got in trouble because you can't keep your mouth shut. So now we're going to practice and you will be silent and you will look straight ahead and you're going to walk to school. And I was just, I was mean to him. Ryden was behaving like an ordinary American first grader. He's talking about superheroes. But Nicole found herself disciplining him the way she'd seen other Japanese moms do. She saw this public walk of shame as a shaming of her. I felt really like, what am I doing wrong? Why is my son the only one that can't, can't behave? And I just felt, felt like I was failing. The most embarrassing part, she says, was arriving at the gate and seeing the teacher, Ogawa-sensei, waiting for them, watching them. And she was there the next day, too. When we talked to Ogawa-sensei, she told us that Nicole was not wrong to see this walk as a test of her. It's not easy. Just as the entrance interview, she says, is really more about judging the parents' commitment than the kids. This walk, she told us, was partly to embarrass Raiden, to get him to change, but also to see if Nicole was willing to enforce the school's rules, rules of behavior that she had not grown up with. And then, on the third morning, the teacher was there at the gate again, waiting for them. And she literally just said... I think he can rejoin the walking group tomorrow. Thank you. And I was like, okay, I guess we passed. After that, Ryden did manage to stay quiet in walking group. And it really did surprise me. Like, maybe their way is right. And we need to expect more out of our children. And we need them to see the repercussions for others. Ryden finished first grade, loved second grade even more at the Japanese school. And then, as they expected, the orders came down from the U.S. military. Raiden's dad was being relocated again. And it was time to say goodbye. When Rough Translation returns, the long way home. We're back with NPR's Rough Translation. Okay, so hopefully I get this right now. One of the mementos that Raiden has from Japan is this calligraphy set. He'll sit there and practice his Japanese letters. I taught myself... Nicole says he spent that first year about as depressed as a third grader can get. When a school assignment asked him to draw the flag of his native country, he drew a red circle against white, the flag of Japan. Then the school had an international day where you could set up a booth about your country. You could set up a table from your country, and he really wanted to do Japan, which is basically me doing Japan. Um... (laughs) And I was just like, Bryden, I don't think that's, um, I was like, I don't, I don't know how that would look if I did the booth for Japan. And he's like, oh, it'll be fine. You know, you just wear your dress and stand there and we'll make food. And I'm like, you don't understand. If real Japanese people show up to this, they're going to go, what? You know, like, where's this, where's this white lady doing the Japanese booth? And And so I didn't do it, you know? I probably just should have. I just should have sucked it up and done it. Those two years that they spent in Japan, they were supposed to give her shy son more confidence, a sense of fitting in. But it seemed like ever since they got back to the States, Nicole says, she feels like now he knows the person he wants to be, and she's the one getting in the way of that. I think he feels like he can fully pass until I show up. You know, this idea of who he is can't go on if you've got a white mom. One day, Ryden got a big packet in the mail from his Japanese school. 
each child wrote right in an individual letter. They like drew pictures. Some of them were just like, right in, where did you go? I hope you feel better soon. We miss you. Like they thought he was sick and coming back. It just broke my heart. But um, why? You know, you you love you love people who love your children. Yeah. And and just how how his heart like sorry, it's like it's so emotional, but like his heart hurt to go to go back to this place where he felt like he fit in and he felt like he belonged. And they missed him and they wanted him back. It's just it's just the the pain of a military child of never getting to have a home. You know, or if you are lucky enough to live in a place that you feel like is home, you have you have to leave it and he has no control. Ugh. It just hurt. Yeah. That like I had to take him from that. Despite the pain of leaving Japan, there's another way Nicole says that Japan has helped Raiden and their whole family. It's changed her as a parent. I give them a lot more freedom, things that most people wouldn't do. Like <laughs> She'll let her five-year-old wander off alone outside. I'll be like, okay, go outside, and I'm going to trust you to come back, you know, at, at five o'clock, and you need to figure out when it's five o'clock. She'll even let her four-year-old daughter walk home alone from school. She had to sign a special form for that. And I'll even recite statistics in my head of the probability of them getting kidnapped is so low, you know, it's going to be okay. Nicole is still a worrying type. That has not changed. But she forces herself to let go, she says, just like the Japanese school taught her to. It seems to work better for Raiden, and it even makes her more in sync with her husband. It's weird, she says, but it feels to her like the kind of parent she is now is just a better fit with her own family, even if that means letting Raiden stray farther than she expected. Raiden's Japanese teacher, Ogawa-sensei, who still talks to Raiden regularly on the phone, recently told him she'd be happy to host Raiden this summer in Japan. We definitely want to send him next summer to go back to Japan. Yeah, like um, some... Ogawa said she'd take me for the year. Yeah. Like, Ogawa sensei years. said she would take him for the summer. Mm. So we'll yeah, she could take for me for like a couple years. A couple years. I don't know about that. I kind of, I'd kind of miss you. He would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's going to be cold in the classrooms again, and you'll have to clean it and eat rice and fish for lunch. You're willing to do all that? Yes. I don't know. I think I like the colorful American school where you sing and everybody's happy. It's too colorful. (laughs) It's too bright and happy, huh? (laughs) So that is how we left this family in October 2019 when we first aired this story. Raiden's summer trip to Japan never happened. Pandemic lockdowns got in the way. But the clock on Raiden's homecoming was ticking. It was only a matter of time before the military informed his dad where the family was moving to next. Oh, they were, they were ecstatic. Um, I mean, Raiden was really happy. He was All the kids. Yeah, well, they all were. And, and Raiden, I don't remember exactly how he 
phrased it, but he was just like, oh, thank goodness. You know, I'm going back to school where people who take school serious. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, but... Nicole asked us not to reveal the name of the country they're moving to in the interest of the family's safety. I can tell you, it is a different Asian country, not Japan. And how are you feeling about the move? Um, well, it brings back a lot of uncertain, uncertainty feelings again. You know, just am I ready to go through that? So I'm nervous. I'm nervous about it. But I mean, what are you most nervous about or what are you most apprehensive about? Just going to the grocery store, um, will they have the same ingredients that I want? You know, just silly things that shouldn't matter. And and I've been getting really concerned about hair color products because I remember in, in Japan, it was really hard to find hair color for a blonde. And so this time I've bought probably six months worth of supply of hair color. <laughs> well, see, that's what's interesting because you you think that because you've been through this already— you, you know the ropes, you know, you know what to expect, you know, to pack the hair products in the suitcase because you're not going to find them. So, mm-hmm. so do you feel like the fact that you've been through this once already makes you feel more prepared or does it make you more apprehensive? I honestly, I think it's making me have more anxiety <laughs> because I know when I went to, when I went to Japan, I hadn't, I was just like, oh, this will be great. It'll be fun. I have no idea what's going to happen. Well, well now I kind of do. She knows she'll have to suspend her new career as an EMT. She's stealing herself to be criticized as a mom in a country where she's worried she won't be able to read the milk cartons. I am American. I love this country. I'm giving, I wouldn't say I'm giving it up, but I, you know, I'm not going to be here. I love being in America. But Nicole says that even if she could stay in the U.S. right now, she'd be afraid to. As an EMT, she answers a lot of distress calls and hears a lot of anti-Asian sentiment from strangers. You would not believe the stuff that they say in front of me, thinking that like, oh, it's fine. You know, like, oh, she's cool. She's white. No, (laughs) you know, it's like, that's that's not cool. We're not going to say that. This conversation with Nicole happened in early 2021, before the shootings in Atlanta that sparked a national conversation around anti-Asian violence. Nicole, though, was already worried to let her husband or her kids go out alone. Somebody might attack you on the street because of how you look. Like, I would not I would never tell them that because I don't want them to live with that fear. But inside, that's what I'm, I'm thinking. Like, I take them out somewhere or anywhere, and I'm looking around anxious because, because I know it's out there. It was getting harder to be a free-range mom. You know, and, and I'm fortunate that I'm able to take my children away from, away from it. All right, sit right here. After I talk to Nicole, Ryden gets on the phone. Can you hear him okay? Ryden, yeah, I can. He's 11 years old now. Can you hear me? You got to speak up, honey. Can you hear me now? Taller, still has that swoop of brown hair across his eyes. I've been in America for a long time now. Like, <laughs> yeah. For a long time. Too long? Mm-hmm. I ask him if he still feels Japanese, even now, so many years out of Japan. His answer is careful. I mean, kind of. I mean, I know I'm not Japanese, but maybe I am a little bit, but... Well, what part of you is Japanese? Probably from the Asian family or something. 
I'm not going to play much more of these several awkward minutes when Ryden and I went back and forth on this topic. I gathered he was not interested in talking more about his identity or his Japanese-ness. What he was very excited to talk about was a gift that he'd sent to Ogawa Sensei, his former Japanese teacher. I don't know if you already knew, but I knitted her a hat. I didn't know that. I didn't even know you knew how to knit. I don't think we have any pictures of it, but it was like a... I don't Do you know, like, what pearl is? What's the word again? Pearl, like a... You know, if you look at your clothes, like your sleeve, if you look. So Ryden starts explaining what a pearl stitch is by pointing through the Zoom call at my sweater, which is a great way to explain things. I, though, am slow to understand it. You mean the no. where the, this piece connects to this piece? No, like you, next to your watch or your arm. Ryden, very patiently, yeah, I would almost say in this very adult That's way, carefully directs my attention to the ribbed arm. pattern on my sweater cuff. Yeah, there. Oh, That's what oh, it is. I see. That's pearling. That's that pattern. Wow. So I did that pattern, but it was a lot bigger. Ryden tells me he took up I knitting did. in America in a class in third grade. Though, don't even get him started on the littler like, knitters. Like the second graders, they'd get like there's knitting tangled, tangled up and like they'd get holes in their squares and stuff. Yeah, they weren't really such the best though. But then my uh, my friends, like the older ones, they, they were really good. The older ones, he could sit with for a long time, just sitting around, knitting and chatting. Just talk and knit. And we'd always talk about funny stuff that happened in school or like uh, school projects or stuff or people buying like really nice yarn at the store or something. Of all the things that Ryden said they talked about in these knitting circles, one thing that Ryden never mentioned, Japan. He'd never said he'd gone to school there or that he had Japanese pen pals or anything about the rainbow lizards that came out in monsoon season. None of it. I never really talked about it at all. Why do you think you keep it separate? Well, I wouldn't have thought people would have think it's interesting to hear about my Japanese experience or something. It seemed almost like Ryden was living a double life, going to this American elementary school while secretly counting down the days or years till he could return to Japan. And now he's finally getting the chance to move to a place that feels closer to home. He's made, like, you know, comments, too, about, like, he's excited the kids are going to, like, you know, look like, like here. And, um, and he's, I don't know if he'll get mad at me, but he's starting to be interested in girls. So that's been a big, you know, concern for him is finding a cute Japanese girl is what he says. Packing up the family this time? Even though she knows it's just another posting, it feels more like settling down to a version of what their family is going to be like from now on. It's a sacrifice that I hope will pay off because we saw how how positive Japan was for Raiden and how it just, you know, I mean, it just opened my eyes as to how much he needs that. And, you know, even though it's a different society, I, I know he's going to fit in just as... You know, he'll just slide right in and he'll love it and he'll be and he'll be happy. And that's what to me being a mother is all about. Ryden and his family moved to their new location back in June. 
Nicole says they're living in a neighborhood with a large Japanese community. Ryden is thrilled to be there. Next week on Rough Translation. Wait, I'm going where? For a dance that was founded in Harlem? We're putting on our dancing shoes and going to dance camp in Sweden. I better hang on because here we go. That's next week on Rough Translation. And don't forget to donate at donate.npr.org slash translation. Ryden and Nicole's story was produced by Jess Jang, Autumn Barnes, Matt Ozug, and Adelina Lancianese. Kathy's story was produced by Adelina Lancianese and Pablo Arguez. Our editors were Amy Drozdowska and Luis Treas. Our assistant producer is Justine Yan. Editorial guidance on this story from Marianne McCune, Robert Smith, and Sana Krasikov. And thanks to Yukari Miyazaki, Mari Yamamoto, Yuki Noguchi, and Martin Patience. The Rough Translation High Council is Neil Carruth, Didi Skanky, Chris Turpin, and Anya Grunman. Our supervising producer is Liana Simstrom. Our supervising senior producer is Nicole Beamsterbohr. Mastering by Isaac Rodriguez and Gilly Moon. John Ellis composed music for our show. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Scoring help from Peter Lang Stanton. I'm Gregory Warner. Back next week. Step, 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 step. With more Rough Translation.